It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Here's Donald. Carry it out. Deep ball. Separation. Caught. Robbie Anderson. Goodbye. Touchdown, Jets. The whole NFL is watching. A fourth and ten. And here they come. Make this pass. It's intercepted by Mosley. Maybe on down the top. Bell breaks a tackle. Looking downfield, fires this one, and intercepted at the 34. Jamal Adams goes down on the ground and takes it away. He'll hit immediately. He got the handoff. You know and that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh, my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the Vivid Seat Studios, use the promo code OVERTIME to get yourself up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase when you download the Vivid Seats mobile app. This is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at Play Like a Jet One. And because it's Dubai week, we thought we would do a mega blowout weekend mailbag with the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang over at JetsInsider.com. And of course, above all that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbly. Chris, good to have you back. You were under the weather for a bit. How you feeling, buddy? I'm feeling a little better today, man. Thanks. Uh, had a uh... Bit of a sore throat, a little bit of temperature, so not exactly how I wanted to spend my bye week. Uh, I was, wanted to do a bunch of work and then enjoy myself, enjoy life for a week, take a break, uh, a week off, but really just been laid up trying to get better, feeling better this morning, though, so here we go. Well, that's why it's a good thing that you have your deputy editor, who is also the president of the Calvin Anderson fan club, Alan Schechter, because when stuff like this happens, he can back you up. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I basically just completely ignored my phone and everything because I, I know, you know, sometimes you can get like a little sick and not feel great, but you can still truck on. Uh, when I woke up Monday morning, I was like, yep, this is not one of those times. I just basically been bouncing back and forth between my bed and, and the couch and not even bothering looking at my phone. Just hoping this would go away, though. That's why they call you the very big deal. It's one of many reasons, Scott. Very true, very true. And the other reason is because you give the very best mailbag answers, so let's get to some of those right now. We'll start with Axel from the DVR Podcast Network. By the way, Axel, when are we doing a TV show podcast together? I keep hearing rumors of this. thought we were going to do some sort of Jets TV show crossover collaboration. we got to figure this out because... Chris and I, you know, we're both big TV fans. We should do some sort of retro podcast. He asks, is Braxton Berrios the new Wayne Corbett? Can you pretend that he is just so that I can be happy for 10 minutes, please? For you, Axel, anything. Braxton Berrios is the next Wayne Corbett. He's practically a clone at this point. I mean, he's exactly the same as Wayne Corbett, except for one thing. He's probably better. Yeah, he's definitely better at returning punts. Yes, yes. That, that, that's, uh, that's definitely true and factual, not just uh, us placating him. No, the part about punts is true. When did Wayne Corbett ever? Yeah, no, punts? I know. I'm, I'm agreeing. <laughs> I'm saying that part is actually factual. The rest of it, we're, <laughs> we're giving Axel a little bit of sunshine here on a cloudy day. Next question comes in from Steve Ballou, who wrote a great piece, by the way, over at NFL Fans UK. So if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend checking it out. He said, do you think coaches in the NFL and college football look at the Jets fans and some of the media reaction to the team and the start to the season and think to themselves, I never coached there no matter what? 
Honestly, there's obviously no way to know each individual coach's motivation or thoughts, Steve. My suspicion is that what it always will come down to is a matter of ownership and also money and control. So I don't think that these guys really care that much about the media or the fans, maybe a little bit. But I think for the most part, if they're getting the control they want, if they're getting the salary they want, and if they're comfortable with ownership and the situation around them, plus also obviously the existing talent helps a lot. Nobody wants to go to a team that they think has no chance to be any good for a long time. I think those are way more important than the media and the fans. I think that stuff gets overblown a lot by the media and the fans because they're trying to make themselves feel like they're more important than they are. I'm not going to say that this isn't a factor for some, but I think for the vast majority of these general manager and head coaching candidates, it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah, as far as the fans are con- part is concerned, A, number one, most most coaches and and really don't bother looking at that type of stuff. Um, now, sometimes they'll they'll end up hearing it from other people, um, you, you hear that a lot with players where players will be like, Oh, I don't pay attention to this and that. I don't pay attention to the media fans. And a lot of times the players are lying, but sometimes they're not lying. They really don't pay attention to it, but that doesn't mean that they don't hear it from their friends and, you know, other people around them. Coaches are, do a, a really good job of just blocking all that stuff out. And they just focus on everything in the building. And the other thing is, Every single fan base of every single team and every single sport at every single level has a, a pretty close to the same amount of insane, ridiculous, over-the-top, crazy fans that are just miserable and always want to do and say horrible things. So this is one of those things that, you know, you follow more most Jets fans, so you get more of that Jet fan stuff reaction than other teams but there's plenty of other teams out there that have similar reactions. Um, one thing with the media, it, it, I think it d- can play a little bit of a, a factor, um, but it's more of, uh, A, the bigger problem is just that the Jets have been bad for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if the Jets, when the Jets had Rex and they were going to back-to-back AFC championships – they weren't getting treated the same way. Maybe the first year you had a little bit of it, but that second year people were like, no, all right, this Jets team's respectable. So it wasn't the same way. Now we've got a decade of irrelevance and incompetence here. And then, but once the media, uh, once the focus of it shifts to a national focus, and then you got all the national reporters and national uh, people chiming in and cracking jokes, I think that can slip in a little bit subconsciously, but at, at the end of the day, like you just said, they're going to look at the talent on the roster. They're going to look at the control and freedom they'll have, the mon- amount of money they have, and that's what's going to guide their decision. Uh, they're not going to get caught up in all that, especially coaches. Uh, they they do a great job of blocking all that stuff out and just focusing on the football stuff. Like when Ad, when Adam Gase sits here and tells us that he doesn't pay attention to any of the stuff and he doesn't care about any, I really truly believe that. And with every single ounce of my soul, I believe Adam Gase there. He does not care about that at all. 
I agree with you on that 100%, Chris. I think the coaches and the general managers, other than guys like Colangelo, I guess, the guy in Philly who started a burner account on Twitter, for the most part, they tune that stuff out. I think a lot of the players will either go on social media or, as you said, hear stuff secondhand. However, I think while that may get on their nerves on a week-to-week basis, I don't think that they let that be a determining factor for where they sign. Their agent is not going to let it be. It's all going to come down to money and the best system fit for the most part. I would be surprised if there are any players who signed or didn't sign somewhere because of how mean the fan base was. Yeah, and then the other thing you got to remember when we're talking about coaches, the players are ten are, are way younger. And most of these players uh, nowadays grew up in the social media age. So, like, social media is a part of their lives. It's been a part of their lives since before they got to the NFL. So they're on it. It's harder for them to avoid. And the NFL, most of the coaches, the GMs, that type of stuff, they're older. uh, You know, they tend to be older than me and you even. So I'm almost 40. They've lived their life without social media. There's very few – I don't know of – even any coaches that I can think of in the NFL that have social media, um, they, they, it's very easy for them not to do it. It's a different story for the, the players. I, and you know, there's always the, the topic of whether players should even have Twitter. My feeling has always been the, the, the smart move. I'm never going to sit here and tell a player not to tweet or not to have Twitter, but the, the smartest move for a player would be to set up like a promotional Twitter account for you and have somebody run that for you. And you never, ever, ever look at it, no matter what, whether things are going great, things are going bad. And if you want to have like some secret uh, Twitter account that just your friends know about, then you set that up with, you know, and have no, no identifying factors to you. And then you can go ahead and use Twitter like the rest of us. But uh, the coaches, it's much easier for them to avoid that stuff. And again, they're too busy watching film and trying to draw up plays to be sitting there popping on NFL Network or ESPN and listening to the talking heads. As Bill Belichick said, he doesn't have snap face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next question comes in from Ben Marsh. He says, so which do you guys recommend I take to help me get through this season? Prozac, Paxil, or Zoloft? Ben, I'm pretty sure you live in New York or New Jersey. I think you've mentioned this once, and I can't remember whether it was New York or New Jersey, but I'll say, forget that stuff. Medicate yourself with pizza. We have the best pizza in the country. Chris and I will differ whether it's in New York or New Jersey, but we will both agree that nowhere other than New York or New Jersey is there acceptable pizza, with the possible exception of New Haven. Everywhere else in this country, you do not want pizza. So if you're going to medicate yourself based on being depressed over the Jets, go get yourself some quality pizza. Food is always a, uh, a great way to give a temporary relief to depression. Um, so, yeah, yeah, everybody's a little bit different here, and uh, they deal with stuff differently. Different uh, things help different people, but food is always a, a good food is always a good way to give a temporary little cure to uh, any type of depression you get a you get those endorphins going when you get some good food so that's one of you know that's why i call it comfort food that's one of the things now obviously not gonna uh, be a long-term solution there but it it'll help you feel better in the moment play like a jet play like a jet
Next question comes in from Peter Dillard. He says, Scott and a very big deal, Chris Nimbley. I know this will not happen, but I would really rather not have Sam play until after the Jaguars game because by then the Jets would have hopefully gotten their offensive line to the point of mediocre. The teams the Jets play will be easier, and then we can watch Sam grow. What are your thoughts? You said it best at the beginning there, Peter. It ain't going to happen, so it doesn't really matter what we think of it. But I will tell you what I think of it anyway. My personal thoughts are that you can't play scared like that, and you're stunting his development by doing that. I think you have to send him out there if he's healthy and let him overcome obstacles. If you baby him now and he's taught that he's not going to have to overcome obstacles, it's going to make it a lot more difficult on him the rest of the way, and it's going to stunt his development overall, I believe. So while I get what you're trying to say and I respect the thought behind it, I just think that if he's healthy, you got to send him out there. Yeah, if he's if he's healthy, that's too long to wait. I will say this though: the I, I do not like the idea of him playing against the Eagles, no matter what. Um, it was it was just Monday that they were talking about how he's cleared for light cardio, like he can't even he couldn't even fully run. He still couldn't throw a football, and then so then less than two weeks from that you're thinking about playing him in an NFL football game. So even let's say the uh, Gase said, basically the cutoff date will be next Wednesday um, for him to be cleared for all physical activity. Let's say he gets cleared for that. And then you're giving him like three days to, to get back into shape and conditioning and everything. And, I, man, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with that. Even if his spleen, uh, you know, it's on Monday, it still wasn't down where it needed to be. They'll have another check on Monday too, uh, this this coming Monday. And if the, if that's the spleen's back down to a normal size and he faces no risk or of doing damage there, then that's that's the the main hurdle to clear. But then to just give him just a couple of days to actually start fully running around and fully start doing physical activity and throwing the football and then get back in the rhythm of everything, just a couple of days, I I just don't like the sound of that at all. Um, I I understand the the want and the desire to get him back against the Eagles again because – uh, Eagles, Cowboys, and Patriots. That Eagles game looks like the most winnable one there. But I, less than two weeks from being cleared for light cardio, that that kind of worries me. While I'm not in favor of babying Darnold, I'm also not in favor of rushing him back. So he should be 100% or at least close to it before he comes back, especially when he's coming off such a serious illness like that. If they have to rush him back and he's still nowhere close to 100%, and like you said, he's still kind of weak, I wouldn't put him back out there. I would wait another week. But we'll see what they do with this. I hope that they err on the side of caution, but we're going to find out in a couple of days. Next question comes in from Luke Grant. He says, do you think we should ignore everything we saw from Quinnen Williams at Alabama because he didn't dominate week one in 23 sub-package snaps? I'm super worried. Of course, Luke is being sarcastic, and if you go and look at Luke's Twitter bio, you'll see that he's very bullish on Quinnen Williams as I was and as Chris was, although Chris obviously wasn't as bullish as I was or as bullish as Luke was. 
Obviously, the answer to this is no, even though Chris and I text each other and make jokes about this. Whenever Quinn and Williams' name pops up, we start referring to him as the bust Quinn and Williams. It's 23 snaps. It was basically one half of football. Of course, you don't judge him based on that. A lot of people are already starting to say he's injury prone and can't stay on the field. It's one injury. He doesn't have some sort of history of this. And on top of that, obviously, he played very well both in training camp and in the preseason. There's no reason to worry. It looks like he's going to be back for the Philly game. So we should be able to judge his rookie year fairly the rest of the way. Anybody that's freaking out already is either a reactionary lunatic or somebody that didn't want Quinn and Williams in the first place and is trying to have their bias confirmed because obviously based on one half of football, there's no way that you can make any definitive judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And and then also we're not sure uh, when he hurt himself in that process either. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we were asking Quinnen about it the week after and he was just, you're going to have to ask Adam Gates about that. Uh, so they they already got to him. I, th- I think that might just be a little more residual for, um, from being with Saban. Um, but <clears throat> you you can't judge him off of not even a full game. Again, like you said, he was doing good in training camp and really played really well in preseason. Uh, but there is, there is definitely a, a large segment of this fan base that didn't want him. They didn't want another DT. So, they are going to look at every possible little thing they can find as a reason to slam him and to say why they should have taken somebody else. And uh, the, one, the one thing that um, I know is going to end up happening is because Quinnen's going to get some stats. He's going to do some good things that are, are noticeable to everybody. But a lot of what he's going to do really well and isn't going to show up in box scores – uh, whether it's drawing holding penalties, that's that's the thing that he did best in preseason. Is he kept getting holding penalties drawn on him, and uh, called because of he was so disruptive and the offensive line had no choice but to hold him. Um, but that's not going to really sh- show up in box scores. And there's a lot of times where he's going to be disruptive, but he's not going to get a sack or a quarterback a hit. And his disruption will allow for somebody else to make a play. And that's going to end up getting ignored by a lot of fans because it's easy for them to do that. And like you said, they want to confirm their previously held bias there. A holding penalty is just as good as a sack because it's a 10-yard loss. So it more or less stalls a drive. And if you look at the numbers from Collision Low Crossers, Nicholas Dawidoff's great book, he talked about how when a quarterback gets sacked, that team only scores 8% of the time. It's a similar statistic with a penalty, the nature of holding. That's a 10-yard penalty. Most times a sack isn't going to have a loss that's that big. And as far as Quinton Williams goes, as you joked, Luke, his tape at Alabama was outstanding in every single way. He was as flawless a prospect as you're ever going to see. The best defensive line prospect since Aaron Donald. Whether he pans out or not is never a guarantee. All you can do is bet on what you have at your fingertips. And what the Jets had at their fingertips at the time was a guy who had flawless technique, incredible size and athleticism, off-the-charts instincts. If it doesn't work out for whatever reason, let's say injuries pop up or something, knock on wood, let's hope that doesn't happen. Sometimes you can make the right choice and it doesn't work out. You can only go on the information that you have. The information that we have right now is screaming in favor of Quinn and Williams. So until he has 
10 games in a row or eight games in a row or six games in a row where he's fully healthy and ineffective, I'm really not going to worry about it. Although, as you said, Chris, there are people that didn't want him in the first place, so they're going to make it their mission to constantly complain. Even if he's doing things, they'll find a way to complain about it, I'm sure. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Next question comes in from Michael Palace from the Jet Up Bleeding Green podcast. He said, in the last 20 drafts, teams with 160 plus draft picks have represented 27 of the last 38 Super Bowl appearances and 14 of the 19 winners. Should the Jets redshirt Sam Darnold with the idea of hoping to land as high of a pick as possible to trade down and accumulate picks, given all the holes the team has to fill in the next offseason? I get where you're going with this, but I just think that it's very harmful to Sam Darnold to sit him out for an entire year, not to mention the fact that it's unrealistic. There's no way that the coaches and management is going to get away with doing this if Darnold is healthy. There would be some sort of uproar. I get the thought behind it, though, certainly, but it's not realistic, and on top of it, I think it would hurt Sam Darnold's development, and you're also wasting another year of his rookie contract. So you got to put him out there. You got to let him play when he's healthy and the chips will fall where they may. And if Joe Douglas is anywhere near as good as his reputation, then he'll be able to take whatever picks the jets have and turn a fair amount of them into useful pieces. So to answer your question, no, I would not redshirt Sam Darnold. I get what you're trying to say, but I just don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. This is one of those situations where, um, like uh, you're playing uh, in Madden, the video game. It's an excellent strategy. Go ahead and use that. Uh, but the bigger problem, uh, like I said, I agree with everything you said, but the bigger problem with that is we need to see what Darnold ha- is. Like we've been talking about the, the last four games, how he finished the season strong last year, the off season he had, how great he looked. And there's a lot of reason for hope there, but it, it still needs to be put, in you know to action we need to see it through an extended period of time and i do think that we all are that most fans took thought that they got a little too far ahead of themselves expecting him to be able to be so great that he could carry a roster with so many holes um in only his second year uh in the league at only 22 years old i think people got a little too carried away with that expecting too much but you, we have to see what he is, what what he has, and what he looks like this year. And then even more so than that, we need to see Adam Gase can do with, with Sam Darnold. Because if Adam Gase, if Darnold comes back, whether it's against Philly or, or Dallas, and this offense doesn't look any different than it did last week and the week before, then that's going to tell you what we need to know about Adam Gase. Um and we need to see what Gase can do with Darnold. We need to see what Darnold looks like. You can't just sit here and say, ah, all right, we know that everything's going to be great uh, when they come back, so let's build around them. You, you need to do both of them. Now, If uh, either way, I think you know, you're know you going to want to try to trade back, accumulate more picks in the end. Obviously, you can uh, – reap a bit bigger reward for doing that with a higher pick, but more important than getting that pick is knowing that what you have in Darnold and knowing what you have in Gase as the head coach. Um, again, if, if this offense doesn't look drastically different with Sam Darnold there, then that's going to be a, an alarming problem. And if you just redshirt uh, Darnold here, 
that's giving Gase a complete and total pass. And then all of a sudden next year he'd come back and it's another wasted season because the offense doesn't look great. Yeah, Chris, exactly. And earlier in the week you heard Manish talk about the Sam Darnold trying to lift the entire team by himself narrative. I think a lot of people bought into that, that a quarterback who's really, really good can cover up the mistakes of an entire roster and account for the fact that this team was built so poorly for so long. And the fact is, other than Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and to some extent Aaron Rodgers, but even him, we saw he was limited because last year that roster in Green Bay wasn't very good and he wasn't able to lift them to a winning record. There's only so much that any one player can do no matter how good they are. And if you look at Jared Goff and Carson Wentz, yeah, they took that leap forward, but they both had very good rosters around them. Sam Darnold doesn't. I think if you were being overly optimistic, you could say this was a mediocre roster. But in reality, it was probably a bottom third of the league roster from the get-go, even with the splashy additions like C.J. Mosley, Quinn and Williams, Le'Veon Bell, Jamison Crowder, so on and so forth. And it's revealed itself to be even worse than we thought because we thought the offensive line would at the very least be improved from last year, and it's been worse. Now, whether that continues is something to monitor the rest of the way, but it also shows you how far away this team was. My friend Chris Walker and I talk about this all the time. The goal for this past offseason should have been to add a couple of nice pieces, which is what they did, and maybe be a fringe playoff contender, be in that 7-9, and 9-7 range. That, I think, was the realistic expectation. Going into next year is where you would have wanted to make your real run. The problem is going to be that in order to get to a spot where the Jets are going to make a real run next year, not only is Darnold going to have to take a leap, but you're also going to have to hit on a bunch of draft picks. Some of the guys that are already here are going to have to start to blossom. Joe Douglas is going to have to be able to make some smart trades and free agent acquisitions. So I think that the Jets may even be a little bit further away than I thought because I thought maybe this year they go 7-9 and nine to 9-7. Nine and seven. Next year, maybe they could take a little bit step forward from that. And then the year after that, so on and so forth. But now I'm starting to think that next year might be that 7-9 and nine to 9-7 nine and seven season. And then the following year could maybe be that year that they go a little bit further. They may be a year behind where even I thought they might be. We're going to have to find out just how good Joe Douglas is because, let's be real about this, Chris, a lot of this, in fact, most of it is now going to be on his shoulders because he has got a lot of work to do this offseason. Yeah, absolutely. And we we talked about this all offseason because a question that we kept getting was, uh, can we expect a Wentz-like um, you know, turnaround in year two? And I, I was very clear about saying this. That Eagles team, remember, yes, Wentz was in the MVP discussion before he got hurt. And then he got hurt and Nick Foles went on to take them to win the Super Bowl. That team was great. Without for, take, Ignore the quarterback position. The rest of that team was great. There was talent everywhere. They had one of the best offensive lines in, in football that year, pro- maybe the best that year. They had one of the best defensive lines in football that year. That team had talent everywhere. Same thing you, you said with the Rams. Jared Goff came in, and, yes, he he had the addition of McVay, who obviously coached him up to be a lot better. But you look at the way that uh, all the talent on that team. And then also – Let's take a look at how Jared Goff is doing right now. Like, I, like he has not been good 
this season. He had, he was not uh, closed the season out, even though they made the Super Bowl. He wasn't exactly great to end the season. So sometimes you can get too caught up in thinking a quarterback looks really good because of the talent around him and the coaching around him helps him look better than they are. And then if a, one or two things goes wrong, all of a sudden they end up being – I don't want to say exposed. That's a little too harsh, but uh, but it, you see the warts in their game. So the idea that like uh, you know it, that Darnold was just going to come in and be able to cover up for all the the weaknesses of this team that that would always seem crazy. And then you add into that that Quincy Inunua gets hurt and lost for the season in the first game of the year. Chris Herndon hasn't been able to play yet. He still won't play um, against the Eagles. That That's two of the, 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 you know, they didn't have a lot of receiving options. We talked about this also all offseason. They had the three receivers and Herndon. That's all they had. Obviously, they had Le'Veon Bell and Ty Montgomery too, which – uh, the Ty Montgomery thing we, we can talk about or not, but that's been a little perplexing to me why he's not being used more, why they're not using him more as a receiver with the need there. But we knew going into the season that, that yes, they their starters were all right there, but they had no depth there and then immediately lose Quincy Nunwa and uh, and Herndon hasn't been able to play yet. So, yeah, that's, that's that was going to be way too much for Darnold to overcome. The, the hope that you would look for is just that he still looks good and you you can still see progress and see him doing good things. Obviously, you haven't been able to see that because of the mono now. So, uh, you know, I, I do think people got a little too caught up in this idea that he was just going to turn things around. I think he he definitely has the ability to make this offensive line look better than it is. Uh, by the way, he can move around in the pocket. He can roll out and get out of the pocket and still make plays. But if he's if he's throwing to Josh Bellamy, he's throwing to Josh Bellamy. There, there's nothing that he's going to really be able to do to to do that. Like he can make a couple perfect throws here and there uh, that where he can make plays, but it's not going to be something that's going to be able to uh, on every single play he's going to be able to do. If you haven't listened to the show that I did with Brian No, who's the midday host over at NBC Sports Northwest and Rip City Radio 620 AM over in Portland, you should give it a listen because we talked a lot about this. And Chris, you and I have talked about this off the air a lot. But I think there are two problems in play here. The first one is that everybody, and this is not exclusive to Jets fans, this is fan bases in general, tends to look at things through a best-case scenario lens. So it was Quincy Noon was great, okay, but he gets hurt a lot. So that's best case scenario. He's also never put up jaw-dropping numbers, and I think the fan base treated him like he has. So you're looking at that and you say, okay, great, Quincy Noon. Well, sure, but now Quincy Noon was not here, and that was an obvious thing you could have looked at because of his injury history. Then you say to yourself, well, if Sam Darnold takes that leap, well, okay, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. If Quinn and Williams is this great player out of the gate, if Leonard Williams takes that next leap, everybody's looking at the season 
as a best case scenario. Nobody wants to account for guys not performing. The offensive line is the perfect example of that. And I think that leads to the next part of the problem, which is a lot of fans don't properly evaluate the talent on the team as opposed to other teams in the league. Rather, they look at players and they just say, oh, that guy's pretty solid. Okay, but how does he stack up against players that start at that position across the rest of the league? You get a guy like Jordan Jenkins, and I talked about this with Daryl Slater the other day, that he's an okay player. He's solid, but if you compare him to the other starting edge rushers around the league, he's one of the weaker (coughs) ones. And so you have to do that at each position. And I think that's part of why a lot of fans had way too high expectations for this offensive line. On top of the fact also, by the way, that a lot of times with offensive linemen, you just go based on reputation or a name you know, because most people are not experts on offensive linemen. And certainly I'm not. I try to pay attention to the people who are and learn from them, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm an expert on the offensive line. But a lot of people said, well, the Jets offensive line last year was slightly below average they made these upgrades with Khalil and Kalecio Semele and Brandon Shell's healthy now and Brian Winters is healthier so they've got to be better than last year so they're probably going to be around average or better well the problem is you were looking again at best case scenario and you were only looking at reputations Kalecio Semele's had injuries and he struggled a lot last year Khalil had to be called off the couch of course I sounded that alarm but much louder was Chris sounding that alarm and he got hammered for it on Twitter we've talked about that He said, beware of the fact that they had to call this 34-year-old man off the couch out of retirement. Maybe he's not going to be that Pro Bowl guy from a couple of years ago that you're holding out hope that he's going to be. And certainly he has not been that so far this season. You look at Kelvin Beecham, who has always been a very mediocre at-best tackle who can get by against mediocre or worse players, but when he's up against a guy who's good or better, he gets destroyed. Look at what Miles Garrett did to him. Now, in fairness, it is Miles Garrett, but still, Brandon Shell, his technique is awful. Go watch Joe Blewett's film breakdowns. There is no hope for him as far as I'm concerned. I know he's got great size and athleticism, but at a certain point, it's time to admit that he's just never going to get it together. And so you look at that offensive line and you say to yourself, between those guys and Brian Winters, who has been a roller coaster ride from the second he got here when he was drafted by John Idzik back in 2013, this offensive line, objectively, when you compare it to the other teams in the league, was not that good. And that was the thing. People said, well, they were slightly below average last year. They've got to be better this year. You're not accounting for the upgrades that other teams made on the offensive line. So, yeah, maybe the Jets improved marginally, but other teams improved more. So even if the Jets were better this year on the offensive line, they still could rank worse in terms of league-wide ranking. And these are the things that I think a lot of fans, again, not exclusive to Jets fans. This is what fans do in general. They don't take these things into account, and so their expectations get to be a lot higher than they are. And then you have a situation where you say, well, if Darnold can take that leap and become a really good quarterback this year, there's no reason this team can't make a run at the division with the Patriots or be right in that wild card mix. And we all made that mistake. But what I did say was I thought that best case scenario, if everything went right, they could be a fringe playoff contender. So that wasn't my expectation altogether. I said, if everything went right, that was best case scenario. I also said, I thought it was more likely that they would go seven and nine, eight and eight. I still think they have a chance 
to go seven and nine. I think that's probably now the best case scenario. It's probably more likely that they go five and eleven or six and ten. But I think everything that I just laid out is a big part of why we're here and why a lot of Jets fans who are looking at this through best case scenario goggles and not properly comparing this roster to other rosters around the league and expecting too much of Sam Darnold are where they are right now. Realistically, most people would have expected the Jets to be one and two at best at this point. And a lot of people probably would have expected them to be one in five at the end of this run. They still could be because, Chris, as you said, that Eagles game looks a lot more winnable now than it did a couple of weeks ago. So maybe they beat the Eagles in place of the victory everybody expected them to get against the Bills. But that's really where we're at right now with the Jets. Instead of hoping that they're going to be a fringe playoff contender, we have to hope that they salvage this season by getting good play out of players that are developing and Sam Darnold being able to turn the corner and then go into next season and have higher hopes than we had for this season. And then the heat will be on Joe Douglas. I realize that was a lot of stuff to digest, but it's a multi-pronged problem. And I think that that's really what it comes down to at this point, as far as the Jets, the fan base, what to do with Sam Darnold, what to expect with Sam Darnold, what to expect from Adam Gase, what to hope for from Adam Gase, so on and so forth. Yeah. And let me just add these couple of things. Cause uh, again, all off season, we were talking about that fringe uh, playoff team. And I kept saying, I didn't think that they'd be able to be good enough to make the playoffs, but I did think they'd be, you know, in that eight and eight, nine and seven range. Um, a, a large part of the reason why I was thinking that was, and this isn't to uh, knock Frank Pollock and say that he's done a bad job, but I looked at the hire of the offensive line coach, Frank Pollock, and everywhere he goes, the offensive line at does has turned around immediately. So maybe I put a little too much faith in that. Uh, but as we got closer to the season uh, and training camp, I watched training camp and preseason, I adjusted and I said, yeah, this team is probably, we're looking at six and 10, uh, seven and nine is the ceiling. And that was before the Bills game and before Donald got mono. I had to adjust my expectations because the offensive line, I, it was clear to me, it didn't turn around. It wasn't going to be as good as I thought it might have been. I thought they would be able to improve it a little bit. But then also to your point about fans not knowing uh, what they're looking at with offensive line, it's not just fans because, you know, ESPN's got all these next-gen stats and they're doing a lot of really good, interesting stuff with these stats. But they've got this new stat, this pass block uh, win rush win rate stat that I've been seeing a lot, right? Kelvin Beecham is the fifth best uh, tackle, or it might even be offensive lineman, I forget. <laughs> He's the fifth best when it comes to the pass block win rate. It's something like in the 90% he's winning. I, I'm sorry, I watched the games. I How? No, no, no. I don't know what their grading system is, what their measuring is, but it's wrong. There's no way Kelvin Beecham is in the top five, whether we're talking offensive line as a whole or tackle or right tackle. He's probably not even top five of Jets right tackles. Like, (laughs) it's it's been bad. And he's graded as the fifth best. So a lot of the measurements that people use and lean on – you know, we talk we talk about PFF uh, a lot and their grading system and their gradings. I saw somebody talking about you know they graded Jamal really high for the, the game last week against the Patriots, 
Yeah, he had to pick six. That skews the, his entire grade. He had a pick six, and it was against Jared Stidham, not Tom Brady. Remove that play from the game, and then let's talk about his grade. Because he hasn't been great this this season either. Uh, that's not a, a, a knock. I'm, I have no doubt that he'll turn it around and start playing much better. But when you go into these grading systems – Sometimes we don't know how they arrive at their grades. They're not transparent at all. Uh, it's very convoluted. We don't know who's doing the grading, how much we can trust their grading. And there's so people look at this stuff and just go, oh, yeah, this is what it is. Well, no, it's not. It, it, you got to look. And if the grade matches the tape, then cool, you can run with it. When you look at Kelvin Beecham's win weight and, and then watch the tape, it doesn't add up. So that this is all – it's not just fans and it's not just reporters that really don't know how to gauge the offensive line that well. There's a lot of people, even former offensive linemen, can, uh, can not know for sure because they don't know what his responsibility was on this play. So there's a lot of things in football that we try to uh, grade, we try to assume. I saw another one of the ESPN Next Gen stats that – uh, was taught. I forget exactly what it was, but it was. It said like this is a, a a defensive back's grade on when they're the closest defender to the ball on a pass. Well, that doesn't mean that that guy had him in coverage. That does not mean that. That's a very basic thing that that any reporter covering this league should know. Is oftentimes uh, you will look and you look to pin the blame on whatever defender is closest. But that does not mean that he was responsible for that. If there's a bus somewhere else that can just work up, a lot of I've talked about this a lot. A lot of times that defender who got closest actually made an incredible play to get that close, but he gets knocked in the public eye because of it. So there's so many things in football that even old veteran football players don't know how to accurately grade because they don't know what the player's responsibility is. So we try very hard to grade these players with incomplete information, and that will lead to us being misinformed way more than us becoming more informed. No question about it. It's like Denzel Washington said, you've got the ill-informed and the misinformed. I do my best to try and learn from the people that I trust who I think know a good amount about evaluating film and evaluating the offensive line. As you said, Chris, nothing's an exact science because we can never know for sure what the responsibilities are. But these are people that generally will be able to evaluate things fairly well. So Joe Blewett obviously is one. He's our guy over at TOJ Film Room. His film breakdowns are outstanding. If you haven't been checking them out, I don't know what you're waiting for. Brandon Thorne, our guy over at Scout Academy, 100% you should be checking out what he does because as far as offensive line goes, that's my go-to guy. He is terrific at doing breakdowns. And then obviously guys like Jeff Schwartz who used to play in the league. Brian Baldinger does some great breakdowns. As Chris said, it's impossible to know everything for sure, but those guys are all pretty good at breaking down film and breaking down offensive lines. So if you're going to try and learn about offensive line, those are the guys you should go to. 
I'm always skeptical of grading systems of PFF and ESPN plus or whatever they call it for the exact reasons you said, Chris, they're not transparent about their grades. We have no idea what goes into them. We don't know who's doing the grades and we have no idea what level of knowledge that person has. You could watch every snap of a game and grade every player. But if you don't really know what you're watching, then what good are those grades? So that's where I fall with that. I think you got to go to the people that have shown you a demonstrated track record of trustworthiness and do your best to learn from them. And that's really all you can do. That's going to wrap things up for part one of the mailbag. We will be back with part two tomorrow. Follow Chris at CNimbly. Go to JetsInsider.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.